All right, guys, welcome back. If you were here last week, then uh, hopefully you have a good understanding of what the American Academy of Pediatrics did with their new policy guidelines and this big initiative that they put forth. If not, I think you probably do. You could you could watch this one first, but I would go back and view that one because we spent a lot of time with background narrative in the entire realm of childhood and adolescent obesity. Uh, I discussed a little bit about uh, my dissertation on the topic, which was 15-ish years ago or so. And uh, it, it was all about the why. Why would all, not all of a sudden, why would the medical field, the AMA, 25 years ago, move obesity into the chronic disease categorization? And then the AAP, American Academy of Pediatrics, did that just this year with childhood obesity to classify it as a chronic disease instead of just a lifestyle condition doesn't just move it under their purview of treatments as in, hey, we could maybe sneak some things over here and get insurance reimbursements. It really puts it on the map as the crisis it is, the epidemic that it is with all of the long-term complications and comorbidities. And so there's a lot of brilliance to this. And there's a lot of opportunity to to do some aggressive treatment as they want. So I want to I'll come back to that a couple different times, but you can look this up if you like. This is a couple hundred page policy and guideline packet that is available now, and within it, which is what we're going to go over today, they did a complete literature review, uh, more than eight hundred citations. Uh, uh, it, Probably, I think maybe they started in 2017. I think that's about right. So you're looking at five or six years of actual committed study to all of the tangential arms of what this will mean. Very multidisciplinary. Uh, it's not just a very glib, you know, hey, let's do this for this reason and hope something good happens. They put a lot of thought into this. I, I, and I, I can't do it justice in two one hour presentations or maybe even 30, 45 minutes today. So if you're really interested in this, especially as a parent of children, uh, adolescents, teenagers, it would be so, so worth your while to check this out. It's it's outlined and broken down categorically extremely well, easy to read, gives you all of the justifications of why they made certain decisions and, and all the different things they looked at. And, and I think you'll you'll get a really good feel for that here today. So let's get past that. Couple things. Uh, yeah, I, I do read a little bit of their own words because I want you to know exactly what they're saying. It's just not my interpretation. And in this approach, this is in the how to section of this uh, childhood obesity results from multifactorial set of sociological, environmental, and genetic influences that act on children and families. Individuals exposed to adversity can have alterations in immunologic, metabolic, and epigenetic processes that increase risk for obesity by altering genetic or energy regulation. And, and it goes on. But one of the things that we talked a lot about last week was, again, how multifaceted this is. And the fact that obesity and overweight in children, especially, and you could argue adults, but we're going to leave that to the side today, it is truly a disease when you look at what it does at the cellular level. And I know the the people that I have to kind of bring at least toward the center on this and convince them that it's not just, hey, you're just a bunch of lazy fat kids and you should just stop eating a bunch of shit and you'll be fine. Like that's that's the antithetical position to making this a classified chronic disease. Think of the fact that the human brain is not even fully developed until your mid-20s. And then if you have children, I, I sure hope you learn the lesson early that children are not just small adults. They are kids. Their brains are quite different. It takes so much time and cumulative effort for their knowledge and maturity to start to gel to where they can make independent decisions. There's a reason why we classify adulthood starting at 18, even though their brains aren't even fully developed until their mid-20s. So in my post today, I likened it to you know, a child breaking their arm 
if your child slipped off a bike, fell out of a tree, went to the doctor's office with the doctor say, Hey, you're just a dipshit. I can't treat you or insurance isn't going to cover it. It's your fault. You know, why, why did you do that? You're, you're an idiot. No, it's an accident. You treat that. And so think of obesity, especially in children who don't have that mental maturity and that brain development as so impacted by their environment that the foods they have available in their home, they're not making decisions on what groceries to buy. They're not making decisions on what meals to fix, what snacks to have available. They're looking at their parents who are modeling behavior and so forth. And so you you really just, if you're, if you're in that mindset that this is all behaviorally driven and it's laziness and so forth, then you're, you're, you're just not even in the conversation. So, so I, I hope at least that metaphor or example of of an accident, you know, helps you see that. But that's how the American Academy of Pediatrics is certainly um, approaching this, and in classifying it as a chronic disease is very true to the complications that then loom in the in the very near future and distance of a child's life. And so, to say we can completely put the brakes on and halt a lot of this risk if we catch it early and treat it. And another reason why they they want to classify this as a chronic disease is the linguistics of that and how it's perceived by the entire family, the children, the parents, to be able to say, this is something we're going to treat. And we're going to do it in a very multifactorial way. We're going to and they're very heavy. Anybody who's on the outside who doesn't quite like this move by the medical establishment, you will like the fact that it's very, very heavy on counseling and training and education of the entire family. When I mentioned last week that there are pharmacological and, and even surgical uh, pathways for this, those are the last resorts as they should be. They're on the table, and I'll get to that today. But it is very heavy in making those interventions at every level, the individual level of the child, the family level, the community level, the, the state, local government level, uh, industry, marketing, that kind of thing. So another little a couple of things I wanted to say about their approach, uh, children with overweight and obesity benefit from health behavior and lifestyle treatment, which is child-focused, family-centered, coordinated approach to care, coordinated by a patient-centered medical home and may involve pediatricians, other pediatric healthcare providers, uh, psychologists, nurses, social workers, et cetera. Obesity is long-lasting and has persistent and negative health effects, attributable morbid morbidity and mortality, and social and economic consequences that can impact a child's life, and I would argue all of societies. Uh, again, if you think this only affects that person or that family, you're quite, quite wrong. Uh, you can look at all the socioeconomics all the way up to the federal level and tax policy and so forth. So again, just if, if we had to break some of this down, look at what their policy statements include, child-focused, family-centered, coordinated, uh, even having medical homes if, if they feel like a child really could use deeper intervention where they're going to be uh, trained. There, there's some really interesting statistics that I want to get to here. Um, so let me just kind of move on. This is all here for you guys to read uh, if you want. So the policy driver, uh, again, 2017, as I mentioned earlier, the CDC supported the AAP's Institute for Healthy Child uh, Weight to conduct an evidence review of obesity treatments and obesity-related comorbidities. And so this is where this started. We're, we're going six years back in them starting to look at this, starting this whole literature review process. Um, the, the two things that we're looking at, this is their scope. When they got all this together, this review is designed to answer two overarching key questions. What are effective clinically-based treatments for pediatric obesity? And what is the risk of comorbidities among children with obesity? So what do we know is available? I, I was really surprised to find out that even things like laparoscopic surgeries, uh, gastric bypass surgery, that sort of thing, there is a lot of research on that in pediatrics. Uh, that this has been done, I think, since the 1940s or so in adults, but in the last 20 or 30 years, it has also been done in children. Um, and there are kind of age restrictions and different things to consider for for surgery, but with really, really, really good results. Uh, again, last resort. And and one one key finding at the very end that I want to I'll just kind of highlight now 
is that every single one of their treatment options or um, opportunities, they really do understand that dose is important. In other words, there's a certain amount of frequency of interaction with kids and families, uh, hours, uh, different types of of uh, collaborative approaches. So nutrition alone doesn't do that much. Exercise alone doesn't do that much. Behavioral change alone doesn't do that much. But you start putting these things together and again, treating it as a medical intervention. Hey, Johnny. Hey, Susie. Like we're doing something here. You see these numbers. You see this. You, you see your BMI, your cholesterol, your heart rate, these kind of things. This is where you're trending. This is where we should be. Just like if you had broken your arm or you had leukemia or something else, we have to be aggressive. We have to do the right things to make sure that we get you back to a place where you can be your healthiest and your happiest. And you treat it like that. And they have found through all of these multidisciplinary researchers, that's how it's received best. If you treat it like behavioral change alone, it doesn't work. It just creates shame. And so you treat it as the disease that they are classifying it as, and, and you're you're in the ballpark. So so that was their key question. Like, what, what have we tested? What has been researched? That's why there are 800 citations in their paper. Uh, but then also, what's the risk if we don't do anything? Like, you know, hey, we know it's a problem, but eh, whatever. Maybe it's not our job. And so they look at some of those things. That was the entire scope of this project. And then here it is. I mean, I know you won't type all this out, but if, if you need it, it's there. You could just Google this and, and you'll find the entire paper and their policy. So one of the things they did is that they, they really looked at the types of interventions available and they wanted to see how much weight can we put on this as a true intervention? How many studies have been done? How good are the studies? Just like any other research or meta-analysis uh, they had inclusion requirements, and so they had a pretty strict grid for the things that they would say, this this informs us of something properly. Um, you know, everybody gets blamed, I'm sure, of biases and cherry picking their information and all this, but they they did what they did. You can look at it if if you want, see if you agree or not. But they went through all of these interventions and decided, okay, with with these types of things that have been done and studied, how strongly can we get behind them? Can we recommend that every pediatrician do this, every primary care physician do this? Or is it just like, eh, it's an option, you know, maybe, maybe not. So again, that's all in the paper. I'll, I'll highlight some of the important things, but you can go look for yourself. Um, but one of the things that they, that I wanted to point out is I kind of read through all of this. And as you see, I copy and paste a lot of their words directly, but one of the things I like that they did, the, the substantial explanation of childhood obesity trends, if you read through this entire document, their entire guideline, it really is a good read. If you're interested in childhood obesity and childhood health, it's truly phenomenally well done. Uh, they are very, very hot and heavy on the social and environmental disparity. There is an awful lot of inequality Um you know, from race and poverty and socioeconomic status, food deserts among uh, under-resourced communities and so forth, that's massive in its its impact on kids. The psychological and social impact of kids, I showed you yesterday, just or yesterday, last week, a smattering of research studies just done on the psychology of obesity for kids. You know, you don't think it impacts them negatively. Uh, you think it's just their choice and they don't care. Like it, it matters a lot. So you can look at how obesity and overweight and that peer pressure and all of those drivers make them withdraw and create even a lot of further physical and psychological maladies and challenges for these kids. Uh, the other thing, of course, was, as I mentioned before, the multidisciplinary and broad contributions to this as, as, a, uh, as a project. Uh, I love the fact that this is very, very instructional for pediatricians and other healthcare professionals. As an AAP uh, position paper and, and guideline and initiative, it's, you know, hey, do this. You need to construct your office this way. You need to check these things for kids. We are reclassifying this as a disease 
So, you know, chop, chop, get to it. Here's what we have to do. Go team. So it's very, very instructional. And I think even for a lay person, a parent who's interested, it's great to see that. Uh, hopefully, uh, as many physicians as possible will get behind it. It is, as I said, a complete literature review, which is just synthesizes a lot of information down for you. And the other thing is, it's when you read all of this stuff, you start to see, wow, it's probably pretty applicable for us as adults too. You know, if these are the things that impact kids and uh, I, I, I showed you a lot of the, the heart of my dissertation I did on childhood obesity and that particular surgeon general driven uh, initiative they did about 20 years ago, all the way down to community environmental build uh, you know, getting kids active and just all of those different layers of society, you know, that is in here as well. So again, worth worth the read if you're interested. Uh, they also very similar to that project I embarked in and the Surgeon General's commission 20 years ago, they wanted to look at every single thing that they could think of that really does inform kids what what are kids going to interact with on a daily basis that that really touches every one of their decisions so you know things like marketing of unhealthy foods we talked about that last week under resourced communities food insecurity all of that um so you, so you think of all of those big meta factors you know here are the categories we really need to cut this up into and then you look at the other more closer community factors school environment lack of fresh food access fast food proximity again more of those things access to safe physical activity environmental health then you get to the family so again this even the surgeon general says this is obviously where most of the impact is so how the parents model for children and what they do, what they have available, that's obviously huge. And, and that, as I mentioned last week, it's, it's not a given that everybody understands this. Um, you know, if you, if you interacted with the entire general public from top to bottom socioeconomically like physicians do, and you're treating 30, 40, 60 patients a day, they're coming through your office, you would be surprised how little parents do know about nutrition and what's appropriate for their kids. And then do they even have the courage to ask a physician, like, what should I do? I'm, I need help as a parent. Uh, those kind of things just don't happen. And typically physicians are there to treat disease, mitigate emergencies, kind of triage their own schedule to make sure that people are getting what they need it's just not a priority to sit there in, in family physician and pediatrician offices to discuss nutrition. It's not even that way for adults. So hopefully by this reclassification, some pediatricians, perhaps some physician groups, some hospital systems will create systems for people to flow through. Like maybe you can't take care of it right there in the office, but here's what we need to do. Here's, you're going to go see my nurse practitioner and we have a program. We're going to get you into this and we're going to do this. You know, it really has to be multi-layered, but all the way down to things like this screen time, sleep duration. A lot of times parents can use the support of a doctor to say to little Johnny, little Susie, Hey, like there's a limit. You gotta, you gotta limit yourself. You know, when, when your mom says you only get two hours of screen time a day, like we're doing that. That's a rule. Uh, I, your doctor say so that takes some pressure off of the parents to have that medical treatment model, at least reinforced from a position of authority. Of course, things like sleep, psychological stress, you know, all of these things, then you get down to the individual factors. So now we're talking about, you know, the, the kids, uh, you know, what's unique to them, including birth weight, things like that. Uh, epigenetic factors, you know, that's really interesting because A, you can't control it, but B, well, I should say, I mean, you do control it, but you don't, you don't know usually till after the fact, but B, how much little we truly think about that. I recall, for example, during World War II, one of the Nordic states or somewhere, uh, Hitler created an entire embargo for like a year, literally starved an entire country for a year. Hundreds of thousands of people starved to death. Government rationings of food. 
And that entire next generation of kids had something like a 90% diabetes rate uh, because gestationally going through that starvation, embryologically, those kids' physiology, that's just how they grew that. That was in their DNA, you know, from the time of conception in that environment. And, and that just shows how malleable we really are and how our own individual genetics can impact things like even hunger from the hypothalamus you have metabolic disorders like like pcos um you know you can get hyperphagia from different endocrine disorders as kids or even just not even disorders just just different um you know pressures in that direction being on a continuum so all of these things they want physicians and pediatricians to be aware of, and they want them to be looking for these things. They want them to be part of the educational process um, all the way down now to the childhood risk behavior. So now we're at the perhaps level of the, the child, him or herself. Um, I won't go through all of these, but you know, there's, there, there's responsibility for everybody, a lot of opportunity for action and change. So now the treatment, what are we going to do? Obesity is a chronic disease and should be treated with intensive and long-term care strategies, provision of ongoing medical monitoring and treatment of associated comorbidities, and ongoing access to, to obesity treatments. As noted previously, obesity is associated with increased prevalence of comorbidities, including abnormal lipids, glucose dysregulation, and other endocrinopathies, blah, blah, blah. So again, we know as soon as weight starts to climb, there are physical ramifications that can last a lifetime, and we're going to treat it as such. The chronic care model requires care to be, delivered, to be delivered within the context of individual patient factors, taking into consideration the child's household, household family influences, access to healthy food, activity spaces, et cetera. Uh, I'm going to skip down to the second paragraph. Treatment of obesity varies on individual level factors. No specific studies were found that compared different treatments by patients' underlying conditions, special needs, or developmental status. Nonetheless, it is important to recognize that the following recommendations will require adaptation based on the parent's unique medical, family, developmental, social, and environmental factors. So I, I just keep kind of reinforcing that I think this particular commission and, and position paper did a lot to say here are the big blocks. Here's what we need to be looking at. Here are the buckets we're going to explore. And yet every step of the way, it still comes down to every single pediatrician and physician looking at that child and family and saying, this is what they need specifically. Out of all of these things we can look at, this is where we start. So we always in our industry like to be the anti-cookie cutter people. Every single coach says, well, I don't do cookie cutter stuff. I do personal custom stuff. Well, as cliche as that is, when we look at these massive policy changes in establishments and bureaucracies like the medical community, we we kind of think the other way. We think, oh, well, they're just they're just a system. They just run people through like numbers. And it may feel like that sometimes because you do have to have policies in place, but they're very careful to make sure that physicians understand as if they don't know already that, hey, you need to look deeply, 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 deeply into every situation and, and treat every single patient and child as the individual they are. The evidence for pediatric obesity treatment that is presented in this uh, position paper shows that several treatments are effective in treating both obesity and related comorbidities. It is important to note, however, that in all of these studies, and this is what I said earlier, if the treatment is discontinued, children tend to regain weight and lose attendant health benefits. There is limited longitudinal evidence about the durability of weight change after treatment. The natural course of obesity across a lifespan is characterized by responses to treatments and relapse when treatment ends. And don't we know that already? Like that's that's why we are here together in this company with, with coaching uh, from a health and nutrition and fitness perspective. We know how difficult this is on every single level. We talk about it all the time. Treating kids with greater emphasis now and this reclassification doesn't change how difficult that journey still is. Uh, I, it, we can't think that a miracle is going to happen, but look, look at how they perceive this. 
there's the the who, the patient and family in partnership with a multidisciplinary team. I keep talking about linguistics because I just think they really nailed it here. It, and that's a symptom of how much they really got right. It's not just pretty marketing. When promptly, you know, because we want to recognize this as the disease it is with all of the implications that it has, what health education and building on multiple topics, behavior modification, counseling, where healthcare setting, they want it to be driven there because they want it to be managed as the disease process that it is, yet it's still community-based. It's going to be, it's got to take resources up and down the food chain. Dosage, longitudinal treatment. This is what was really interesting. And I, I think I have one more slide that discusses this, but they, they, they noted a couple sticking points where if you are treating a child inside of that family unit together for three to six months with 26 contact hours, that becomes the, the point at which you get about a 75% success rate comparatively. So once you've got about five hours in, five contact hours of education, which think of, that's a lot. You know, you're going to over the course of a month, two months, three months, you're going to have five hours of education with this child. You start to see some results. You get 10, 15 hours in, you see more results. It gets up to about 38%. Once you get up to about 26 hours and above, it really starts to stick. It becomes part of, of who they are and what they do which is why I'm a fan of, of personal mental health therapy as a, as a treatment model for even adults for different reasons at different times of our lives. When it's something that we really want to work on, you dig into it. You take it seriously. You see a therapist once a week and you, you do work together. You create plans. And that's, that's, the, that's the dose part here. It's not just, hey, here's a brochure. Good luck. Hope you guys take this seriously. It's let's do something. Let's get a plan. Let's make sure we're we're creating some frequency and some contact points that will have impact. So the formats, uh, group, individual, and both. Uh, the group, of course, could be classes and so forth. But there is also that that medical home model where it's we're gonna we're gonna go to this place and we're gonna we're gonna stay here for a couple of weeks or a month and we're gonna get some education. You know, we're gonna do something in a formal uh, formal way. That's I, I want to see the results of that. I, I want to see that in action. I want to see, like we know about inpatient studies with with nutrition research. I want to see if that really has the kind of impact that that I think it will, uh, because it's also kind of disruptive, you know, to take the child out of his or her normal life. So that's a pretty serious step. Uh, of course, face to face is, has the strongest evidence for change. Uh, virtual we know, uh, can be a close second because you're still face-to-face. -face. Uh, then you get into, uh, I don't think we need to go over all this, but this is kind of a breakdown of that. Uh, it, this gives a little bit more detail in how to make those things happen. So when you look longitudinally at how long you're going to map this out, how much interaction you have, the fact that you're involving the family, there's the medical home model I alluded to. Uh, increasing frequency, you know, as we just discussed. Uh, but then they even get into things like motivational interviewing. As I said, they did a lot of instructional work in this guideline for pediatricians, uh, making sure that it's empathetic and non-stigmatizing is important. Emphasizing self-management. You're going to let this child do real work. You're going to give them some responsibility and some trust. So all of those things, again, are what I think you should expect if they're done very seriously by, by competent agencies like this. So kind of nearing the end, uh, an effective program describes technical rapport, incorporates many nutrition, physical activity, behavioral change strategies simultaneously, as I described earlier. And, and that's how you get to uh, that energy imbalance correction. So at the end of the day, one of the things that they did talk about, of course, was just the mechanics of nutrition. You know, what kind of approach are you going to use? And are you going to suggest a certain amount of calories? Are you going to track food in any way? And even though they didn't get into that in extreme detail, 
they did mention that a couple things are going to come next out of this initiative. And, and that's probably one of them, which is going to be, okay, what, what are the ways that we know work best instead of just talking about the need for this and giving the structure and creating all that infrastructure, what are we going to actually have them change? What are we going to recommend how they eat and so forth? So this is of course where my ears perk up and, um, they're, of course, heavy on the education part, and they they don't want a lot of rigidity. You know, that's not going to be good. But they did come down to th those single two words, which is kind of the bottom line, energy imbalance. How do we get these kids to understand what the right amount of food is, quality of food, meal frequency, timing? How do you assess that? You guys remember in our research reviews over the last two years? all the things that we talked about when it comes to the science of hunger and different diet methodologies. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so la last slide or two here, parents and caregivers have a crucial role to play in obesity treatment through strategies such as parental monitoring, limit setting, reducing barriers, managing family conflict, modifying the home environment. I, I know I'm repeating myself, but it's just great to see a bureaucracy like this I think do it right, you know, in my opinion, when they're talking about giving the resources and the encouragement and the space for families to do this together from the top down, meaning parent to child. Uh, parents aren't just going to give their kids to the doctors. I hear, you know, make my kid lean and healthy. Uh, it's it's to empower the parents to to be in that role. Uh, a recent systematic review found that certain common features involving parents in obesity treatment interventions with their pre-adolescent children were successful in producing nutrition and physical activity behavior change. And th those features include promotion of intrinsic motivation, gosh, where have you heard that before, and self-efficacy through empowerment of parents and children and fostering shared values and whole family ownership. That's what my dissertation was all about when I did it on childhood obesity 15 or 20 years ago. Um, you just can't get around that, that it's whatever's happening in the family is what that child is going to absorb. That's going to be home base for them. And so that's why that it's so important to involve the whole family. So finally, these last two points, as I mentioned, and, and again, anybody who's scared about this being quote classified as is a disease state now, and now it's medicalized and so forth, and it's no longer seen as just behavioral impropriety. All of that, that's 90% of this whole, whole paper is about those needs and about the behavior of the parent and, and the child and the family structure. Now, and even the medical model of how doctors can facilitate that, now it's about, okay, there is some, some pharmacological assistance that is there to be had. And they even list all the different classifications of drugs available for this and studied and how they've been used in pediatrics and adolescence, and then how they kind of rank their effectiveness mechanisms of action. So it's all in there if you're interested, but it's, I mean, it, it could be misused, of course, but I just don't imagine pediatricians all of a sudden becoming pill factories to, to give kids, you know, drugs. So we're, you know, already giving them Ritalin and Adderall and things like that. I don't think we're going to give three-year-olds metformin, but there are some extreme medical conditions where it could be extremely helpful. Just like you would give a type one diabetic child insulin. There could be reasons that this intervention for this child, even though it may seem extreme, is far better for their health whether it's something that's going to be ongoing or just a bridge to some better outcomes and then transitions, at least we are going to, as the American Academy of Pediatricians, having studied all of this, we're going to create this flow of option and, and then you can decide family, patient, physician, you know, what the best course of action is. But then, as I said, this this really did surprise me. 20 to 30 years already, they have been doing uh, gastric surgery on, on peds, and I'm just not aware. I didn't even look at some of these references. I, I did not look at the individual studies to see those outcomes. Uh, they didn't get into it uh, a lot in this paper itself, but they did show that it has been successful. 
You know, they didn't say, eh, it's sketchy. It's definitely the last resort because it, outcomes aren't that great. They report that outcomes are actually very, very good. So personally, I want to look at that a little bit deeper. I just didn't have time for uh, today. So let's chat about all that. Uh, we have Jennifer Souders. If she's interested in jumping in with some expert advice, she is a physician and happens to fulfill the role for our company as our medical director. I'd be happy to. I don't I don't think I have anything to disagree with. Um, in fact, I've been, you know, personally concerned about um, how we approach obesity, knowing about the epigenetic um, problems involved since since we have people who are either the children of obese or the children of those who underwent starvation. Um, they're, they're programmed. We've programmed obesity into generations of unborn children at this point. So this is a tidal wave um, that is just, just cresting now, um, but it's going to be a problem from an epigenetic standpoint, in my opinion. I think there is a lot of area that could be moved with government regulation and, um, you know, our our food system there there are so many there are so many things that are out of our control in terms of how our food is grown processed marketed and sold and so i think with our free market economy and people should have the freedom to choose whatever they want um that does not really help but i don't think we're going to get much movement on that either so i know that behavioral change is important. And I think that this whole family model and this empowerment model is really a, uh, an important step. Um, it has to be education and ha has to have buy-in from everyone. And there's nothing more motivating, I think, than being teased and bullied and having your childhood basically stolen from you, um, from shunning and um, and a lot of, of social um difficulties just because of your body weight which is really horrible there is now uh, growing and, and and increasing many fold evidence for the role of chronic inflammation as the underpinning of most chronic disease and among the things that is a, a uh, a big part of chronic inflammation, obviously, is obesity. I don't think anybody who's taken NAMs and stuff should be completely ignorant of the fact that um, you know that that cortisol is involved in inflammation and what our eating habits do in terms of that. But we also have a lot of social and psychological stressors. So when you couple um, eating behaviors and epigenetics along with people who are systemically stressed because of racial, social, economic, um, gender-based discriminations, um, things like that. These are people who have very high levels of stress hormones in their body. Um, as a result, they're going to have chronic inflammation. And as a result of that, they're going to have chronic diseases. And so this is, this is important um, in terms of understanding where all of the chronic diseases are coming from this kind of this kind of therapy will help the parents as well as the children involved. Um, one of the things I'd like to say is actually I'd like to show this. I'd like to just hold this up. And I think every nutrition coach should have this on their bookshelf as a reference and they should read it. It's a fundamental book. The the author, uh I I've been in conferences with him. He's part of a of a, a inflammatory chronic disease study group that I'm in. Um, Robert Lustig is, is brilliant. He is a pediatric endocrinologist. He knows just a little bit about this. This book was written in 2018, but it goes through everything, what he has done um, in terms of at the patient care level. Um, it, it basically embodies everything that these clinical guidelines embody. And he's talked about his work uh, and the frustrations of his work in the governmental agencies and things. But this is readable. This is readable for a coach. The guidelines can be a little bit difficult to approach. Um, and it, one of the big things that that is very obvious to me and has been for a long time as I've studied this research is that 
in particular sugar and what we mean is the fructose molecule in sucrose. So that is a cellular toxin. And it is probably one of the most modifiable and one of the main drivers between our diet and chronic inflammation and chronic obesity and chronic ill health. So I think every coach should read this. They will get a, a layperson's solid take on this. It's a good reference for, for your clients as well. Um, and uh, I have not found anything in this book that I don't feel is uh, adequately substantiated um, from a sound scientific viewpoint. It will help you to understand the physiology of uh, fatty liver and obesity and glucose and fructose and you know insulin resistance and and how all these things play out in the body in a in a very readable way. It's a very comprehensive text, and it's like you can get it for like four bucks on Amazon, I think. So. I would I would recommend that for all our coaches. It's something that should be on your on your shelf, you know, next to the the nutrition textbook. Awesome, Jen. Thank you so much. A uh, couple of things that jumped out at me. First of all, as I've been kind of pounding all week long, a little bit of a reframing of obesity and overweight as a, kind of a crisis, like of your own health. It's not just, ah, I probably need to lose 20 pounds or it's that time of year again. I've you know gained and lost 50 pounds 10 times. It's time to do it again. You know, When you understand the things that you just mentioned as disease states and the fundamentals of disease, it shows why classic BMI, BMI models are still okay. It, you know, those get a little bit of the, uh, uh, you know, they become the punching bag for some people because they, they, they seem unattainable, you know, to have your BMI per age and gender at a certain level. But we're the ones who keep moving the goalposts of what's acceptable and what's not. Uh, I can't tell you how many people come to me and they say, man, I just, you know, I want to get down to 220. That's where I'll be amazing. I'll be shredded. I'll see my abs and I'll say, well, you know, what did you weigh when you were 18, 22, college, Oh, 160. And yet, yet you think 220 is where you're going to be your healthiest. Like that's, that's still obese, you know, but we, we've moved the the goalpost so far. I remember when I was doing this particular dissertation 20 ish years ago, I think we were just to the point where we were at about 35% rate of overweight and obesity. And people were forecasting, oh my gosh, pretty soon it's going to be 50. Pretty soon it's going to be 50. Like, what could we ever get there? Is it ever going to be that bad? And everybody thinks the the worst might be here and we're going to see improvement. We're at 70% now. It just, like, where is the end? Yeah. And so I I don't know. I I just feel this renewed call, so to speak, to say, wow, we really, really need to do something. It's not just about how you look or whatever, getting ready for your next photo shoot. It's we need a fundamental change in how we perceive our food intake and fitness. Yeah. And I think what's really uh, deceptive for people, uh, you know, our general public is they may feel as though they look okay, you know, uh, maybe that person that you're that hypothetical client who says uh, 220, he'll feel great, he'll look great. You know, we um, we are we are deceived because what we really aren't seeing is what's happening on the inside. So, in other words, I think that added sugars are the number one most crucial modifiable dietary change for health that people can easily and substantially make. But they, but they need massive education because it is really un, uh, un, underappreciated. And I think if we all knew of, say, an alcoholic who um, had fatty liver and whose health was harmed as a result of that behavior, we would all immediately raise our hands and say, yeah, that's, that is medically a, a significant problem. And that person is in, a, is in a medical crisis. Well, we have fatty liver from our fructose intake too. It is also a medical crisis. Um, and so why is one fatty liver, you know, so dangerous and another one is is sort of so under-recognized? It's not being under-recognized now, but it has taken a Herculean effort 
um, at research and public education to start to bring these factors into play. And if I was if I was going to give the coaches out there one piece of advice, I would say really have your clients look at the foods that they eat and look for the added sugars. And you know, there is I might get forty grams of sugar at the end of the day, but I I've looked at mine. I track every day about. 75% of them are coming from whole food sources like apples or blueberries, you know, or um, maybe that would be a few in a sweet potato or something like that, whole real foods. Um, but we use sugar so incredibly heavily in all of our foods as processed foods because it's a preservative. And that is one of the biggest factors that people think, oh, there shouldn't be sugar in my bread. Oh, but yes, there is, you know, and and so the education um, and and the fact that that many products don't necessarily disclose this um, is is a big problem. Well, you'll be happy to know in the down to the nuts and bolts of the the new guideline from the American Academy of Pediatrics. There are a list of four or five things to do right now. Like here are the classifications you yeah. need to do behaviorally. Number one is sugary drinks. Just get that out of the house. You know, they yeah, absolutely. You know, and drink. most parents think that fruit juice is natural, so it's healthy. It might as well be seven up sweetened. You know, it's the same. It's just mainlining sugar, and they and that's where the education is so important. Kevin, you jumping in, Doctor Brunacini? I just type in the comments, the 5210, I don't want to say rule, but uh, this guideline, That's I remember that from my peds rotation for counseling, regardless if they had obesity or, or weight issues, it was just a anticipatory guidance for practically every family just to have these guidelines of, you know, five five servings of fruits and vegetables, Two hours of limited screen time, one hour of exercise, zero sugar, added sugar, beverages, juices, et cetera. That was always, always something we, we shared at the well visits. Um, but that was mentioned in there, but you know, that, that was right after the limiting of sugar, sugary drinks in the guidelines. But, um, let's, the thing I appreciated most from the guidelines, other than just how well it's organized, orchestrated, and comprehensive in a sense of disparities and, and talking about inequities, et cetera, um, especially compared to other classic guidelines like hypertension or dyslipidemia. It's just, that's a far, it's a little bit more easier in the sense of it can be, you know, if you're not at this blood pressure, do this. It's a little bit more direct in that regard. But um, what I appreciated most, it was on page 51 and it talks about the importance of face-to-face -face encounters mm -hmm. in um, 51. So it's 50, page 50. Um, or, there is evidence that is 26 or more hours as far as a ma major driving factor for effectiveness of intervention, um, intensive interventions. And oh, yeah. yes, virtual is going to be helpful, sure. Um you would think that's probably going to take more frequent visits with that being said, but it just the importance and the emphasis on face-to-face -face education and counseling support and the number the, uh, to give some type of idea of this is not just a one shot in the dark, best of luck. See you. See you if you have any questions, it's the, this is deliberate. This is an involvement and a mutual partnership as we always hope medicine becomes or should be. That this is this is a family effort to help you educate and support you, and it it needs to occur, needs to be a priority. And I, I'm reflecting my own bias of what I envision it should be, but I clearly they saw the importance of making a per, making a point of that in the guidelines, and I, I thought that was the most profound thing to me. Yeah, I, I really want to find, I mean, this is obviously renewing my energy level into kids. And, you know, there's a reason why I did that dissertation like that. I remember 12, 15 years ago, there was some kind of a regional pediatric conference here and through our, our major health system, Deaconess, I was invited to speak. 
I can't remember what I spoke about, but like, that's just how much this topic means to me. And it really makes me want to kind of feel out if anybody in our city is going to do anything with this and how I could involve myself, you know, where can I insert to help them with infrastructure and education and just the systems for families? Like, wow, what a, what a great opportunity. And, and that's, that's the beauty of something like this that is bureaucratically driven and in place. It kind of gives, gives everybody the license from top to bottom to like do something like everybody's going to look around, like what's going to happen now? Who's going to do something. So this is a time to really get involved and and see if you can drive something in your own communities. Yeah, definitely was a big poke for me as to wondering, you know, is there something at like, uh, you know, a, a after school youth program or within the schools or, you know, how, how to reach out um, and help with that whole process? Because, um, it's going to be important. And I don't, you know, that's a good question for our coaches. If we want to get involved, where do we start? Do we, do we start at a local children's hospital? Do we talk to a pediatrician? Um, do we go to the school district? What do we do? You know, boys and girls clubs, what? I was invited about 10 years ago. Our, our city got some grant money for health initiatives and they put a lot of it into the school system. And <clears> I was on that board where we decided, Hey, let's put, table tents on every you know cafeteria table about caloric value of the food that they're eating that day we got the uh, cafeteria workers to rearrange the setting and so the healthier foods the fruits the vegetables those are the kind of things at the point of purchase that were first and closer and it made an incredible impact so so much so that they quit doing it because they were losing money on the snack food which was the higher profitability yeah and which of course is just disgusting because, you know, those decisions are being made by, you know, that the school system doesn't have enough money. So they have to have some profit from that shitty food. But I mean, again, I mean, that, that was one place that I found I could get involved and, and do something good. So yeah, more, more to come on that. I definitely, I'm going to be thinking and acting on this because I want to, I want to see what we can do as a company and as individual coaches. That would be great. I think if we could do something, as you know, the diet doc um, would be very appropriate for for us to be able to take those roles into our communities. Awesome. All right. And Justina, thank you for being on. I know most of our people, Jen, kind of like the Nutrition Coaching Global Mastermind, they watch these later. They can't all be here at this time. Um, so anybody who does watch this later on the playback, you know, feel free to comment to me and maybe we can get a little cohort together of people who want to get involved and do some things. And Joe, if I can stay on with you for a minute after the recording is done, I just have a separate question, not related. Well, I will uh, I will stop the recording here, let everybody else get off to their uh, weekends and so forth. And, and again, thanks for coming on. And I will see you guys next time.